Hello and welcome to this episode of Thrill the Hill. My name's Alec Perry and for the Farm Advisory Service, I'm thrilled to have you with us. In today's episode of Thrill of the Hill, I speak with SAC consultant John Farker about the potential for renewables in Scotland, how renewables contribute to the 2030 climate targets, and how new innovations could revolutionise how we view renewable energy production in Scotland. Hi there, John. How are you doing? Good, thank you. And you? Yeah, very well, thanks. Um, thanks for agreeing to come on the podcast. Um, John, this is your first time on Thrill of the Hill. Can you just give yourself a bit of an introduction, um, discuss a little bit of your background, mention some of the work that you do as part of the environments team, uh, maybe talk about some of the things that you're working on at the minute? Uh, okay, so I'm John Farker. I work um, in the environment team at SAC Consulting, um, and I specifically work on renewables projects, energy, and carbon. Um, at the moment, the shift has been uh, generally kind of away from the renewables um, and the engineering side more to carbon and life cycle analysis. So carbon footprinting of various stages of the supply, food supply chain. Um, but equally at the moment, there have been in the last few months um, some renewed interest in renewables, specifically electrical, hydro, PV and wind. And uh, John, is there anything in particular that you would put that down to? Uh, clearly, the the price of electricity. It's um, it's a poor time for renewables from the point of view of, of grants and incentives and financial um, stuff from the government. However, the actual raw price of electricity doubling does hit people, and they kind of think, okay. And it's not just the price. I think it's the kind of security issue around it. People are worried, okay, it, what's happening in Ukraine and Russia can affect the actual supply of electricity or, or gas or whatever we have. So it's not just the price, it's also security, I would say, as well. Brilliant. So, John, I just wanted to get kicked off with the podcast with a broad look at things. So um, this is the first time that we've really spoken since the COP climate crisis um, conference in, in Glasgow. I just wanted to get your perspective on it. Um, were renewables well represented, in your opinion? I mean, I would say generally no. Um, it was they—they they were there uh, in many forms, but the—I guess—the headlines was net zero, which in the conference seemed to get overshadowed. The part of net zero that was talked about was the removing carbon sequestration, offsetting. Um, so the reducing bit, which renewables is part of that, wasn't as high up the agenda. It wasn't in the, in the main goals. Um, it was understandably about uh, adaptation. There was an acceptance that there will be climate change. Um, so that was a priority, adaptation to, to adapt to what will happen. But And energy was on the agenda in various ways. Um, but it was, it was talked about at the scale of switching from coal. So central large power stations the and there was broadly a, a commitment to, to commit kind of sums of money but not broken down by what was that and the, the headline thing and, and the media pressure and everything seems to be around about offsetting and sequestration rather than actually reducing um they do discuss the hierarchy so the hierarchy generally with kind of carbon reduction is 
you reduce first, then you look at um, sequestration. Um, so reduction, and then in that you can also switch to renewables, so a more sustainable power production or, or energy production. And it was kind of, yeah, that disappeared in the wash. There were a whole streams about it, but in the actual main messages that came out, renewables was, I would say, diluted. Okay. Well, John, we have covered renewables here on the podcast before. In what I refer to as our season one, we had our colleague Ian Boyd on. Um, he came on to talk about the opportunity for renewables, but that was back in 2020, um, just before the beginning of lockdown. How has the sector moved on or, or has it? Um, it has it's it's changed in one major aspect and it's slightly closer on another so the one major aspect is the current electrical price electricity price um, and other gas which and it filters into heating oil oil or fuels so the, the energy price increase has changed the the outlook for now however this has to be treated with caution that the payback on these sorts of investments and these sorts of this sort of renewables equipment is often over the. It's not in generally in two years. It's in three, four, five, six, and up to ten years that people consider these sorts of investments. Is the energy price going to stay as high enough to actually pay back that investment for ten years? That's a very tricky gamble to pay. There's whole companies that their living is based on calculating future energy prices and they generally get it wrong uh, i would say so you kind of it's a, it's a big gamble to be just gambling investment based on the current very high energy price but what also has moved on is there's other things there's there's other benefits to generating renewables you can supply in in some services to the grid they call them grid services but the problem is we've got a change in our structure to our the national grid in the UK. However, since 2020, it has moved in. We now know what it's going to look like. Therefore, the other opportunities to sell renewables and other services into the grid looks like the finance can stack up. So, John, the idea behind this podcast is that we discuss the topics that are affecting sectors that are involved in the farmed upland environment. Uh, do we know how we're getting on in terms of hitting some of Scotland's sustainability targets? And is this something that you could discuss a little more? In in general, it's which sustainability targets, but the ones relating to kind of energy um, and renewables would be broadly, Scotland doesn't have a big challenge meeting them. It has a, a, most of the renewables generation or a big chunk of it proportionally is is based in Scotland with the wind farms, the hydro. Um, so it's, it's topography, it's climate, uh, everything lend itself to it. So quite a big chunk of the UK's generation that is also exported south of the border um, is, is based up here and a relatively small population. So I would say it's quite likely they will. Um, they, mean, not, they haven't yet. Um, but for most of their targets, I think, especially the ones relating to renewables and power, yes, I, I think that's within their grasp. I mean, they in the whole of the national grid, no. But in the in the little bit that sits in the, the bit that sits in Scotland, 
yes, they 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 almost certainly will, I think. But what is, is going to be interesting is when some of the power stations and renewables and stuff come to the end of their life. These were all set up. A biomass, there's quite a lot of biomass power production in, in Scotland. They don't have as long a life as a coal power station or, or things like that. But for various kind of technical reasons, they were all built based on quite big incentive, financial incentives through the renewable obligation. Um, they couldn't afford to be rebuilt at the current just based on the market price because their their fuel biomass fuel is is a lot more expensive than coal or gas. So there is a problem they've got to address in the next ten years. Quite a lot of the gen the renewable generation, including the turbines as well, they they will start falling over soon and not be useful. Um, so it's a strategy to make sure these are replaced as they would be in a coal or a nuclear power station which has the economics to make it stack up just based on the electricity price. So yes, as long as they do something about renewing the, 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 the plant, the systems. So assuming John, that these replacements are made and the current level of interest in renewables in Scotland continues to increase, what, uh, what seems to be the the kind of renewable technology of choice right now talking solar hydro biomass wind what what, is, what do you think most people are interested in i would say solar at the moment it for several reasons it's it's relatively it's very simple to get through planning um compared to wind um there isn't as much kind of constraints from so things like the MOD with radar and stuff. They could they really loads of areas around airports. You cannot put wind. There are policies in some of the local authorities to to restrict wind. So planning for wind is is limited, and for hydro, there are certain places where it works. You just need the right rainfall and the right topography. So those most of those places where it's viable, they've already been done. Um, so the whereas if solar panels, especially on roofs, um, quite a lot of the interest is coming from large scale pay, like people with cold stores, uh, things like that. And it's it's slightly longer payback, but I would say it's always been viable. Panels last for twenty plus years, easily up to thirty years. They usually pay for themselves within about 15 years. So if you've got the right usage. So it's, but with the current electricity price, that's payback is often down to seven or less, depending on the on the usage. So that PV is the one we're seeing the most interest in. So John, hypothetically, I'm an upland farmer. I've got a huge scalp of hill. I've got a flowing river. It's got a loch. I've got a woodland component to the farm. What are my options? What should I be looking at? And, and where do I start? Uh, a huge flowing river would uh, say, look at that. That's that if you have one. Um, it has to be long enough in your own land. It's tricky when it crosses people's other people's lands or there. Or the it's fairly easy to do a quick, just based on the, the topography, it's uh, an assessment of the and the catchment of the potential, that's not too complex to do. I mean, just a high level look at it. That 
hydro, if you've got actually got the flows, is a phenomenal source because it's obviously it's pretty much twenty four seven. Sometimes in the summer you have to don't have enough flow, but it's yeah. If you have a generally a good flow road with a good height difference, um, then that's where I'd be first looking. Woodland, obviously, for biomass, for heating just the properties. Um, but you do actually need quite a lot of woodland to kind of sustainably from your own um, woodland. But the years you don't have it, because uh, you're not cutting down timber every year for most woodlands. So having your own woodland is kind of good. But if you're cutting down a few trees for a log banner, fine. And that's the way and that's it. But if you've got actually quite a big biomass banner, that's doing several houses, it's sometimes tricky unless the woodland does it a, a quite a large size. Um, but I still would always be looking at solar. Um, it, it is worth exploring, a, an upland farm is worth exploring wind, but I'm imagining most people, upland farmers have looked at it already and had issues with planning or um, things like that. But hydro, there is kind of it's the, the planning the permissions you need from the environment uh, from SEPA it's changed it's, it's a lot easier it used to be very difficult to get the permission to do hydro but now they're minded to, to help you out you do have to keep, take care of the, the fish and everything like that but it's it's eminently um, workable no no I, I was just going to say John so so on the on the topic of solar um, energy in, in particular what kind of scale of setup are we looking at what what would you consider to be a farm scaled solar uh, renewable array for an upland farmer it's probably not it's it's most upland farmers won't have a big energy use during the day the only one they will have is on there the farmhouse most likely of houses on the property in the steading. So that's the problem with the PV. It's, you can look at battery storage. That does, it's hard to make it stack up. Um, however, it is probably at the moment slightly better and more viable, but you have to have a fairly decent daytime energy use, which is around them probably. So, Unless you're going to connect to the grid and export, that's definitely viable. But the connections are tricky in most areas, especially at the top of the hills. You're generally at the, the ends of the lines. Not always the case, but um, so you, you you can kind of explore larger field scale, which are in the hundreds of kilowatts to, to megawatts. Um, but that would be for connection to the grid and predominantly exporting it. But if it's for use on your own farm, it is generally looking at domestic scale, you know, roof mounted or, or field mounted is, is but it, it can be both. Um, and those run, depending on your supply and if you connect to it, but if you've got a three phase supply up to about 12 and with Clever playing around, you get up to 25 kilowatts, very simply. Um, you can go bigger than that with uh, a proper connection agreement and uh, uh, slightly more conditions you have to get agreement from the grid um it is a different process once you go above the four kilowatts for for single phase 12 kilowatts for for three phase once you go above that it's a different um you have to have a connection agreement and that can be expensive um 
And then once you go about that, you might as well explore getting a big connection and actually getting some decent money for export. Do you know, you've just set up for my next question really nicely. And that was, how do you go about finding out what your connectivity to the grid is like? And can that be a barrier for a lot of farmers? Um, I would say connectivity, probably for general, for solar anyway, for wind, your biggest barrier is generally planning permission, planning. Um, but for PV, your biggest barrier will be connectivity. Uh, the, the, there are maps of the constraint. We do a lot of work on that all the time. Just the initial inquiries come in. The first thing you're going to do is look at the constraints and we contact the, the local grid and see they can give us indications of likely maximum capacities uh, and connection costs um, fairly quickly these days. Um, so that is it's, but you need to know what you're looking at and typical load. So you do need it's it needs the input of an expert to size it, and they know the typical questions that come back from the grid to do with frequencies and various technical stuff, and, and depending on how you're generating the electricity. That's the first question you ask, even before you go to the planning authority is, what can I connect to the grid? So the first conversation you need to have is with the, with the grid. And can you break down some of the costs involved with creating this renewable setup on your farm, whether it's solar or wind or hydro, et cetera? Yeah, okay, so, so the, for the, the actual buying, the, the, the cost, the one thing you don't know is the cost of connection. That's that's the unknown and ranges dramatically. But for, for the actual equipment, so the kind of, it depends what scale you're at, but um, the, the, the cheapest kind of below um, like 15 to 20 kilowatts is solar. Um, that's kind of usually comes in at around about anywhere from a thousand to 2000 pounds per kilowatt installed, that sort of figure at that scale. Much small scale wind is, is a bit more than that. It's a bit more expensive. It's it's not. But once you go above about 25 kilowatts, wind becomes cheaper than solar. Um, will be in your drop. You'll be dropping to around about the thousand pounds per kilowatt. That sort of figure uh, to install the equipment. Hydro is is kind of is very dependent on the terrain and how far you have to dig your pipes. The actual generators are, are, are pennies. But it's the you have to duct water through a pipe down a hill um, on most systems you do, um, and that depends on the ground. It's your groundworks and digging that in. But the cost per kilowatt installed is very high for hydro. It, but however, it generates for it could be twice the price of wind or, or PV. However, it generates twenty four seven. So per kilowatt hour or per, per unit of energy produced, it's one of the cheapest. Um, but it's expensive to install it per, per kind of like kilowatt of turbine. And John, if you have an existing setup right now, is now the time to be thinking about expanding or is there real potential in new uh, setups? What, what's your take there? Um, if you have a connection, it is worth because connect the, the network's changing, the grid is changing all the time, they're upgrading it, and equally someone else might have put in a renewables downstream, and that will actually improve your connection costs. So you, it is 
worth upgrading the wholesale price. It, it sometimes turbines can be uprated. Lots of them have been downrated. So wind turbines to meet various things. If and once the feed-in tariffs come to an end, you can uprate it. Um, to, apart from that, turbines, it's kind of your connection is worth a lot, but it's worth exploring it. But storage is the is the, the what everyone is looking at. On this small scale, it's tricky. It doesn't really stack up even even now. Um, it it can. There are cheap storage, like using just very old-fashioned lead-acid batteries. Those can, in some cases, stack up, but it's still tricky. At large scale, so hundreds of kilowatts, yes, it is good. Um, however, it's limited opportunities to actually supply those that to the grid. Um, but that is what's changing. So, they, as I said, the, the national grid is transitioning. Um, quite a lot with more local control of, of central what is now central services. So the opportunities to sell services such as storage, there's there's a list of them, frequency responses, kind of startup. There's a list of about seven or eight services that people sell who can store power or um, to the grid. And they are very lucrative if you can get in there. The contracts at the moment are pretty much sewn up. I mean, they're always looking for flexibility. People can switch off loads or switch on loads on demand just to cope with repairing the grid. Um, but new project, um, yeah, that it's, it, you, we still need to wait, I would say a year, maybe two years until they've sorted out the actual hand transition fully from full national grid to these local um, so local control by SSE and, and Scottish Power, they will be controlling lots of the services that are now controlled by National Grid, but that's still probably a couple of years away. And once they've got control of them, we'll know the incomes from them. So I'd still say it's probably, if they haven't got usage on their own site, if you've got an existing setup, you still probably need to wait another year or two um, before, unless you can, it's worth exploring increased connections because they're always very valuable. And John, what kind of assurances can farmers expect um, in the stability of the long-term payments for generating this renewable energy? So if they're in now, in one, I mean, there's no incentives at the moment, really, um, not, not, not to talk of. They've got a guaranteed minimum price, which is quite a way below the wholesale price at the moment. Um, but that's not really enough to justify. So it's at the moment, there are no incentives really at small scale. There are you know, things coming up on the megawatt and gigawatt scale for, for generating uh, that comes up every five years. There's one coming up soon, but that's not really applicable to farmers because you have to be generating a huge scale. Um, so the only income you've got is from selling your electricity to the grid. Uh, Primarily, if you're not storing it anyway, um, and that is just the whole to sale electric, and that changes on a daily basis. Um, and again, that's a risky one because you've got to predict the future energy price. If you've got a lot of, if it's going to stack up in 15 years, even at like say the old 10 pence per kilowatt hour price, then you're fine. It's only you're only going to do better than that. However, if 
lifetime of the equipment is less than if it drops back down again, it's, it's risky. So at the moment, we're probably in the least secure time because it's you're relying on predicting energy prices. Um, however, in the, in, there are schemes coming in and there's incentives that w- will need to be considered. What they're going to look like, we don't yet know fully because to meet the targets from COP26. So this might probably play more south of the border than north of the border. As I said, they've got a bigger challenge to meet their renewables targets. Um, but either Scotland will need to do something with heat. So that's probably where it's, there, there will be incentives coming in around that. And they've already, Scottish government's already bought in kind of compulsory elements like heat networks in cities and things like that. So yeah, it's, the, the least secure it's been for the last 20 years is, is now. My big takeaway, John, from what you've been saying is that renewables are incredibly complicated um, and there is a lot of opportunity for you to trip yourself up. What advice would you give to somebody who's interested in farm scale renewables, um, has maybe seen a deal that looks a bit too good to be true, what are some of the pitfalls and, and how do you avoid them? So, I mean, yeah, I guess as a landowner, people approaching them with, okay, we want to put up five megawatts of solar PV or some such thing like that. Um, and we will pay you X on your land or, or, or a percentage of our income. These are quite well established now, these agreements. So it's a case of, contacting someone who knows what they're talking about and saying, okay, here's the agreement. Does it match up to, we know businesses that are doing this and have stayed in business over the energy crisis. So their their structure is sustainable and it's not just an offer to try and get stuff and then they're going to go bust because the the last thing you want to do is get into, start a project with someone who is going to go bust. So it's, um, it is a case of just getting in touch with people who know these systems and know the kind of contracts. And if it's, I mean, at times in the past, the, 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 they are actually quite good things. If you're in a good connection place, the incomes are good. So it might not be too good to be true. It might just actually be good. So just because the incomes are, are quite high doesn't necessarily mean it's, it's too, it's not, not real, but um it is as you the devil's in the detail the small print might be that you're sharing the risk on maintenance things like that it, that's just that won't means that if a yeah so on if you're the wind takes out half your panels on the ground you have to pay half the maintenance fee so it's it's looking at those the operating cost and what risks they are sharing with the landowner or if they're just doing a simple land rental and do you find in your experience, John, that people use the farm advisory service to come to yourself for renewables advice? Or is that a mechanism for people to, to get in touch and explore some of their options? Yep, yeah, I'd say most of our renewables inquiries in the last of this scale, since, since the incentives have died, probably have gone through um, the advisory service, farm advisory service. Actually, I think all of them have come through that. Um, and it's it's a mechanism where it channels it to the right person, depending on the inquiry. Uh, between us, we know who it can go to. Um, and 
it gets a fairly bespoke response because there's time for us to actually address if they get in touch with the, the, the farmer and say, okay, what is it specifically rather than just generic? Here it is. This is the rough install cost of X thousands per kilowatt. Um, it's not kind of every detail, but it gives you a slightly time to actually refine it and make and give advice that is specific. So it is a useful service for farmers to get a bit of time. And, and it might be just a, a hunch saying, no, this won't go any further. Yes, it's worth exploring this X, Y, and Z. This is what you need to do next. Um, most of our inquiries are of that nature. It's like, okay, you can rule things, certain things out, or or signpost them where to go next, and now I can take it forward. Great. And John, I was just speaking with the producer before we got started on the podcast this afternoon. I've been completing a number of carbon audits recently, and I think it's fair to say that the majority of carbon audits that are coming through to us, with the exception of perhaps some big dairy units, um, the contribution of electricity towards the carbon footprint of the business is not massive. Am I correct in thinking, or, or should my takeaway in that message be that renewables and farm-scale renewable production is something that we can advocate for in terms of a, a service for the, the general public as opposed to a, a benefit to the farm itself? Yes. I mean, lots of lots of agriculture, it, it, or most of agriculture is quite low uh, in a, as a sector, um, electrical uh, electricity use. So yes, it is very much that it's it's connecting it to the grid. You said, as you said, there's the, there's the potato stores, the dairies that, that will need the power. Um, so yes, it is that, but it's, um, it's, it's, it should also be kind of, you, you say it's, it's not a big contribution to their, their footprint. It is when you look at percentages, so something like, so there's certain products that are very high carbon. So most meat is that is that case. And if you look in, in percentages compared to, to grains, cereals, yes, it looks tiny. Yet the, the absolute number is probably the same. So the number of tons of carbon produced is the same. Percentage of your overall output, it's lower, but reducing a ton of carbon has the same effect rather the percentages around. So a ton is a ton of carbon. So reducing your, your own or, or decreasing your footprint from your electricity is as important as anywhere because it does, yeah, when people look at the percentage on things, especially things like beef and stuff, it looks minuscule. It looks like there's no point in bothering. However, when you look at the actual tons of carbon, it is worth bothering. So it's, it's, it's bearing in mind percentages might mislead things. So as in cereals, oh, it looks really big, the electrical use. The actual electrical use is probably quite similar. Um, so, so, yeah, but it is in general, in farming in Scotland, it is a service for the public. Great. And John, farmers, crofters, landowners are being told by Scottish government that we need to see transformational change in the face of climate change and biodiversity decline. So I wanted to get your perspective. What, what does transformational change look like to you and how does that um, impact things at a farm level? As, as I say, so it's it's if we're looking at percentages, it's hard to see how renewables would fit in for, as, a, as a priority. But when you look in actual numbers of tons, 
it can make a big difference. Um, and that's that's what we've got to bear in mind. So transformational change would be roofs with PV panels on them. It's not for everyone, not just within the agricultural sector. Um, wind turbines of a certain scale, that's that's limited by um, the capacity of the grid more so than, than solar. It's slightly less predictable. Um, and also, I think storage is where the transformational change is going to come with regard to renewables. At the moment, different storages are being explored all the time. The technology is not changing massively. And lithium-ion batteries are still lithium-ion batteries. Lead-acid batteries are still lead-acid batteries. But there are other means, like hydrogen is one that people are exploring a lot. If you can store the energy, then that will be, I would say, the transformational change within, within agriculture. John, one thing I hear quite a lot is that some of the materials used in the creation of this renewable technology, whether we're talking about turbines or, or hydro stations or biomass burners, that they're not sourced in the most green, sustainable manner. I was wondering if you could just speak to how we strike the right balance with that and what the cost-benefit analysis of that looks like in terms of sustainable practices and, uh, and not emitting more carbon than, than more offsetting. Yeah, I mean, obviously, these types of equipment, there's a lot of steel that goes into the actual equipment, and they are often laid on, on quite large amounts of concrete. Um, so there is quite a long way back. Obviously, this was one of the first aspects of uh, things like wind turbines, biomass boilers, and there were a lot of work done in Germany um, on what they call life cycle analysis. So they, they take it from the rock, the carbon outputs of making the raw materials, um, so the steel, um, building it in a factory, um, importing it, usually because most of this equipment comes from abroad, uh, and laying concrete and the whole thing. And so at the point it's, it starts producing renewable energy um, and then it's expected lifetime. And different equipment, that's different expected lifetime. So biomass boilers, I believe the calculation is based on 12 years. Most of them are longer than that. And turbines were, I believe, 15 to 20 years, depending on the turbine. Um, so, I mean, with, with a hydro scheme, most of it is quite replaceable. The bit that you build will stay forever. It's pipelines, so, so things like that. But And all of them, the what they call, this is called the embodied energy, so the, the, the carbon from actually building the kit would account and compared to what it produces over its lifetime and saves, it was always far less than 10 percent um the, the worst ones were kind of which is the short-lived high um high steel things like turbine small-scale turbines and things like that um so it was always overall as long as they're running um it's always worth building them so this this was a question addressed way back when before i was even working in renewables uh, and has been looked at constantly since then that that that's great, uh, and I think that'll be really reassuring for a lot of the listeners as well to to know that you know by building this wind turbine, by building this hydro plant, um, I can actually offset um, some some carbon um, in the system. So, John, one thing I'm really interested in finding out from the listeners this year is what their ideas are going into the future, and uh, so I just want to get your your perception here. 
In terms of where you see the sector in 10 years' time, are you optimistic about the outlook for renewables in Scotland? Um, yes, uh, very much so. We have The reason there's a lot of generation and renewables up in Scotland is because it suits it. Um, space, climate, <laughs> weather, everything does suit renewables. So that, that is why it is up here. So I did, that won't change. Um, climate people a bit, but it's it will still be here. But equally, we have a farming sector that has pretty much led the way almost in Europe with renewables. Uh, the number of times at meetings and things like that, that there's, everyone's asking, okay, so what do I need to be looking at now? So there might have been an inertia 20, 15 years ago, but certainly not now. So within the farming community, there's there is, um, I'd say, anything technologically that comes out, I'm confident would be adopted by the um, the, the farming uh, community. So I would say I would be optimistic about it in 10 years' time. That's great. I, I love the, the, the idea of this wet, windy, muddy uh, part of this island um, being particularly rich in, in natural capital and, and particularly well suited to renewables. So I think that's a, a really positive uh, way to, to end the podcast. John, just a final question. I'll, I'll wind down the podcast. Um, I ask this to everybody who comes on the podcast. What have you seen happening within the industry right now that you think more people should be paying attention to? Are there any good practices or innovative ideas that you, you want to draw attention to? With regards renewables, um, I think for those people who have a connection, the one I think in the short term they need to be looking out for is storage. Um, as I was saying, it's the these, these things that are kind of lots of aspects of supplying electricity to the grid called, called grid services. This is beyond supplying electricity. It's these wider services. They're the thing that can increase income for people with the connection or even make renewables viable. Well, I said, we're not quite there yet. They, the, the market is changing in the next year or two. It was meant to have been finished by now, but it's like all these things, it's been delayed by several years. So it's the electricity reform in the UK. Um, so, Grid services is what, for, for electricity, is what I think I would be keeping my head the ground to if I was a, uh, an upland farmer. Uh, John, I'd just like to thank you again for coming on Trail the Hill. It's been really good to have a, a chat with you. Um, obviously, renewables are a developing sector, and I'm sure there'll be opportunities for you guys to come back on in the future. Um, but uh, on behalf of the Farm Advisory Service, thanks very much. You're welcome. Thank you for inviting me. Thanks so much for joining us for this episode of Thrill the Hill. If you've enjoyed listening, please like, subscribe and follow our podcast. Leave us a review and let us know how we're doing. And if you'd like to get in touch, you can find all our contact details at the bottom of our show notes. You may also enjoy some of our other podcasts, such as Cropcast, our monthly show providing advice, updates and scientific insight into crops and soils, or Stock Talk, our monthly panel show providing timely updates and advice for livestock producers. Join us again next month for our next episode of Thrill of the Hill. The Farm Advisory Service Podcast. Audio advice on livestock,
crops and soils, environment, rural business and more. Brought to you in association with the Scottish Government.